Occult Confessions is brought to you commercial-free through the generous support of our patrons. Visit occultconfessions.com and click on Donate to help keep the history of the occult on the digital airwaves. Today, we bring you part two of our discussion of the Black Mass. In the last episode, we talked about how the legend of ritual evil was wielded against minority groups in ancient and medieval Rome and Europe. Today, we move into the Renaissance's and modern period with tales of witchcraft accusations and a popular false narrative of priestly abuse at a convent in Montreal. James is back, captain of the table, James Caplanges. Hello, everybody. Olivia Literal Grandmaster. Hello. My name is Rob C. Thompson. Let's get back into these black masses. We, the members of the secret order of alchemical actors, do solemnly commit ourselves to a full and honest telling of the history of the as far as we know it. Hmm. That felt good. That was felt way good. It wasn't felt good in my face. Felt good in my ears. We were in the zone. Yeah. Uh, plugs, Olivia, please. Plug, plug, plug! Okay, so this is the second half of uh, our most recent patron, I'm going to call it a patron binge. I'm delighted. I'm delighted, oh. all these new folks. We've got Bianca V, Alia, 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 Norse Force, oh. Norse Force, that's for Brie, Norse Force, mm. PB Needs J, which took me a minute, but oh, I wow. get it. <laughs> <laughs> David W, Damien Z, Asmodeus S, that's for you, Olivia. Oh. And John T. Woo! Welcome. Welcome, folks. Welcome, everybody. Uh, and, and I am going to get to a little more, um, you know, opening of the year business. But before I do, uh, we want to give a little plug to Caitlin, uh, whose show is called Audio Astrology. Uh, I checked out this show. Caitlin is a friend of the podcast uh, and her husband, Clifford, uh, checked out this podcast. It is really interesting. Uh, They're short episodes, like three to five minutes. Um, And uh, Caitlin's sort of doing these little sort of astrology, uh, almost like lessons, uh, different meditations on astrological things. But uh, she's also doing this sort of like sound art underneath of it. So there's all these cool sounds. Yeah, audio astrology. Check it out, Olivia. I think you'd like it. That does sound pretty cool. I can't believe you haven't told me about this before. This is. I literally just found out over the break. Oh, okay. uh, so yeah, <laughs> yeah. They, uh, Caitlin just started the show. So super cool. Check that out if you uh, if you have five minutes. Like just give it a give it a try. I will. Uh, okay. So now here's what I want to say. Uh, part two of my discussion of where we're going. Uh, and, and Olivia really inspired this. We were having a conversation on Monday. I, I want to talk a little bit just about the sort of philosophy that we've been developing over the last three years and, and the philosophy we're sort of running with this year. What, what's, what are we all about here? Why are we doing this? I, I used a phrase with Olivia that I've never used before. <laughs> she brought it out. Yeah, of me. we've really had a, we had a, a deep talk. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and and I said to Olivia, the podcast is about radical open mindedness. That's that's really I think that really captures what we're doing here. It's the idea that if it's the idea that we shouldn't close our minds to any belief or belief system, as long as there's some evidence to support it. If there's evidence against it, or if there's no evidence, well, then we need to be critical. Uh, but if there's evidence that says, uh, or a case to be made, if there's a reasonable case to be made for something, 
then we should remain open to it as a possibility. Uh, we shouldn't close ourselves off. So when we're talking about a lot of these folks, we don't talk about them uncritically. You know, we, we, when we talk about Alistair Crowley, we don't ignore the fact that he he was a seriously abusive human being, and you wouldn't want to be married to him. For sure. But that also doesn't uh, erase the contributions he made to occultism and the subconscious and the way the mind functions uh, and the way belief functions, or, you know, in the case of Austin Osman Spare, his art and, and his contribution to belief and, and the possibilities of sigilization. There are a lot of things that are possible out there that we have not ruled out, uh, but that, that society tends to turn its back on. Uh, and by society, I guess I mean the mainstream or close its mind to. Uh, and this show is really about maintaining radical open-mindedness. Does that sound right to you? Yeah. No, I mean, it yeah. definitely sounds right to me because we had we had, <laughs> had a deep talk for a couple of hours about All right, James, James, you're having new to this. an epiphany. You... Yeah. I, I love it. Yeah, it does sounds, that sound? Yeah, it sounds like what, uh, what I've been trying to go for my whole life as a student. It's not easy. Mm. It's not easy to, uh, you know, hear about demons and hear about, uh, you know, terror that comes in the night. It's not easy to hear about witches and Blavatsky's all, you know, system of planets and planetary spirits. It's not easy to listen to that and say, I'm going to remain open-minded to all of this and see what sense it makes and see what contribution it can make to my life and to my belief system. That's really hard to do, but that's what we're up to. That's that's why we're here. All right. Let's close up those plugs. Plug, plug, plug. All right. Now here we're going to get into some good, good, pure occulty stuff. Last, last, uh, ep- last part one of this, we were talking about the major world religions, Judaism, Christianity, and then the heresies of Christianity in the medieval world. Now we're going to move into witchcraft accusations. So this moves us from the 1200s into the 1400s, 1500s, some 1600s. Prosecutors leveled charges of ritual evil in the form of a black mass on the heads of early Renaissance witches. Now, again, as I said, as I've said many times, the extent to which there were actual witches in the way we think about Wiccans today is highly debatable, particularly in the Renaissance period. But there were folk traditions and folk beliefs that people adhered to that would often result in them being called witches, even if they didn't think of themselves that way. So what did people say about witches? How did they accuse them of ritual evil? Let's start with the Malleus Maleficarum, a book we can't get enough of. Uh, It makes allusions to a black mass suggesting an underlying folk tradition. But as opposed to author Jacob Springer's detailed ideas on how witches get in the way of human and animal reproduction, Springer's commentary on the black mass is actually relatively sparse. He doesn't have a lot to say on this subject. Still, It does feature some common but sensational elements of the Black Mass the way we've been discussing it going back through history of now 1,400 years, except that now Springer is ascribing those things to so-called witches. Here, the devil asks for some classic Black Mass activity. The The devil demands an oath, and then... And the devil asks whether she will abjure the faith and forsake the holy Christian religion in the worship of the anomalous woman for so they call the most blessed Virgin Mary, and never venerate the sacraments, and if he finds the novice or disciple willing, then the devil stretches out his hand, and so does the novice, and she swears with upraised hand to keep that covenant, 
He adds, finally, that she is to make certain eugens from the bones and limbs of children, especially those who have been baptized, by all which means she will be able to fulfill all her wishes with his help. He's saying grind him up. Grind him up. Okay. Yeah. That's enough for me. <laughs> that's like, that's enough for you. Yeah. Okay, you're, you're not going to participate. <laughs> so uh, I want to jump to the 19th century because uh, this is a book we haven't discussed, but it's a fascinating in, a book. Uh, we've talked about a lot of accounts of witchcraft, uh, but this one is by a French historian by Jules Michelet. And he compiled what I consider to be one of the most interesting and strange accounts of the Black Mass in his book, La Sorciere. So 19th century guy talking about Renaissance witchcraft. According to Michelet, in France, the Black Mass emerged after the year 1300. For French Catholics, this was a period during which the country was under the thumb of the English crown and the church had splintered because of the Great Schism. James knows about that schism. Yes, the Great Schism that separated uh, the the Christians the first time, right? Yeah, the Greeks for the from the Catholics shipped you on east, mm-hmm. so that you could worship in a dome. Yeah, they're like go back to Byzantium, right? So, <laughs> <laughs> worshippers sought to provoke Jesus with this Sabbath, bidding him to thunder on the people if he can, and laughing when he did not. So, this is the Black Mass of the witches, according to Michelet. In the year 1300, a bunch of French witches are gathering in the forest and being like, Jesus, kill me, like uh, Lieutenant Dan and Forrest Gump. <laughs> so, except, except without the water. Right. So Michelet says that this pagan rite has its roots in the tradition of lighting candles for Diana, pagan goddess, going back more than 200 years earlier to the year 1100. It was also part of a 14th century trend toward the worship of Mary in place of Jesus. So he's a little concerned about this goddess worship. The elevation of the Virgin as the object of veneration, not only with Mary, uh, but across the culture, is a a source of concern, because we have our patriarchy, after all, to maintain. In Michelet's imagined French Black Mass, women serve every office, including priestess, human altar, and the one who pledges Holy Communion, representing a kind of uh, redemption of Eve in her temptation in the Garden of Eden. So women are at the center of every aspect of the Black Mass. Yeah? What's the problem so far? Yeah, I'll I'll see it. (laughs) Chicks, man. Too many chicks. Mm. Uh, It's a vagina party up in here. It's a donut party up in here. Hell yeah. So... Okay, but let's 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 get some sausages on over. A black shaggy wooden devil, possibly Pan or Priapus, sits at the center of the ritual. Then come the denial of Jesus, paying of homage to the new master, the feudal kiss, like the greetings of the temple, when all was yielded without reserve, without shame or dignity or even purpose, to Pan or Priapus. Following the old pagan form, she sits a moment upon him in token of surrender, like the Delphian Cirrus on Apollo's tripod. After receiving the breath of his spirit, the sacrament of his love, she purifies herself with like formal solemnity. Thenceforth, 
She is a living altar. Uh, she sits on this guy, is what Michelet is saying. Like an oracle sits on a tripod. She sits on his presumably penis. Good. <laughs> Good. Good. That's as, that's as it should be. Yeah. Then Michelet says they feasted and danced, touching back to back and spinning until the participants couldn't tell who their dance partners were anymore. You see where this is going. The witch priestess prostrated herself and a demon perched on her back. You knew that was coming. You know, you didn't. And then said the credo (laughs) and made the offering. They prayed for the freedom of their descendants. Then they divided a sacrament among them, seemingly made from the woman's own body, possibly menstrual blood, who knows. The problem here is that uh, Michelet has a tendency to use euphemisms. Uh, so it's it's really hard to say exactly what he means by a cake or sacrament made from the woman's own body. But my guess is menstrual blood. The hallowed pledge of love. A cake baked on her own body. On the victim who perhaps tomorrow would herself be passing through the fire. It was her life. Her death. They ate there. One sniffs already the scorching flesh. Then a witch kills a toad because she's angry with Philip. Uh, like Black Philip? Uh, you know better than me, Olivia. What do you mean by I don't? I don't know Black Philip. He's like, it's just kind of like supposed to be like the personification, I guess, of the devil, like on earth like you make a pact with like black philip like black philip comes to see you and he's like a black oh, well, like goat you know no yeah you know michelet really could have used you because he had no idea who philip was he... <laughs> well i'm just assuming but maybe that no you're probably right it makes good sense to me okay uh... i win oh sorry. <laughs> so we have to find philip in mockery of the unused day and the breaking of the Christian host, she brought a toad dressed up and pulled it to pieces. Then rolling her eyes about in a frightful way, she raised them to heaven and beheading the toad, uttered these strange words. Ah, Philip, if I had you here, you should be served in the same manner. Yeah, we better better find Philip because they're going to kill him. They're going to do some horrible things to Philip. Oh, God. Well, I don't know then if that's the right thing. I think Philip finds you, but... So is that saying you would also kill him? Or yeah, would... you, you would... Phil, Phil's on the chopping block, yeah. Oh, damn. Okay, well, this is... I don't know. This is different for me, then. Watch your back, Phil. Since God does not strike the witch down for this blasphemy, the congregation concludes that they've triumphed over Christianity. Demons dance around and jump over the flames, mocking hellfire biting the heads off of toads because not enough toads can die for a black mass, right? You can never have enough dead toads. <laughs> During the, well, nobody's at a black mass and says, you know what? There are too many dead toads around here. Is that because like they were like familiars? Uh, I guess just because they like were- a later e- association? I, I think for Michelin, I mean, this is 19th century. So he's combining every possible legend of the black oh, okay. mass into one here. I just assume because they're like, icky like toads and witches it's this like trope uh, yeah, yeah i just know that's supposed to be like a familiar right that's why they're in harry potter too not that that's well, like evidence but so I'm, the, just, I'm just saying anyway the profound research that jk <laughs> rowling did for those books oh no not her 
Okay. Uh, so during the final part of the sit, we are fine with her. Also not fine with her on this podcast. She is a woman about whom we have no opinions about. I read her books. I have opinions. <laughs> she, I understand she is a controversial figure and I did not. I read one of those books. I was not a fan. During the final part of the ceremony, families gather around the flames to enjoy fellowship and revelry, while some head into the darkness of the woods beyond the smoke of the torches to engage in, can you fill in the blank here? Sex. Illicit sex, yes. Illicit sex. I was going to say child murder. You can't just have sex with your wife. You're not going to go off into the woods and have sex with your wife. You're going to have sex illicitly with multiple wives. Cool. Michelet says that Incest prohibitions preventing marriage, even between sixth cousins, <laughs> made oh. it so that villagers often couldn't intermarry. So <laughs> this is the argument. He says, in the village, there were rules that you couldn't marry your fifth cousin, your fourth cousin, your third cousin, not even your sixth cousin. So the Black Sabbath Sabbath gave you a chance to express your pent-up desire for your fifth cousin. Well, they need to, to tell the nobility about this because... <laughs> yeah, they were marrying their fifth cousins left and right. Okay. At the end of all this, the witch who was the center of the action died or she went off to die as a kind of scapegoat figure. Again, that's not especially clear in the book, but that's the end of the Black Mass service. Well, okay. Strange. Yeah, I mean, it's got all the like ritual murder. It's got incest and you know, all sorts of that. So it's it's got all the the hallmarks of the black mass we've been talking about in heretical Christianity, right? It, it's just carrying forward. Why does she just die? Why does that? Why does she die? Yeah, I don't believe their motivations. <laughs> I mean, it's possible she could just die in effigy or symbolically, but it's because she served as the altar. I think is sort of like the completion of this ritual symbolism. The goddess. So does someone kill her, or is she just she just withers away? She just, in my reading, she sort of goes. She goes off. She goes alone. She disappears. Becomes one with the earth. Yeah, she's the active participant. Like the that that witch that altar witch is the the most active participant. Okay, so they're not the one that's like making any kind of connection. This no. isn't about that. No, it's not about that. Got it. So uh, now I'm going to go ahead and discredit Michelet. He expresses admiration for Sprenger's Malleus Maleficarum and lists the registers of the Inquisition as one of the handful of sources from roughly the time period that he's writing about. These are not, of course, accurate sources because, as we discussed in our last episode, people who were confessing to ritual evil and black mass rites of all kinds were generally coerced. The confessions came from the people who were interrogating them, not from the people themselves. It was just bad science bad police work. Michelet shows the continuation of the legend of the Black Mass as an early Renaissance phenomenon, a legend that persisted all the way into the 20th century in the works of people like Margaret Murray, who was an Egyptologist whose fanciful writing on witchcraft we discussed all the way back in our second series on our first year on the Lady podcast. Remember magic. that? Yes, Oof. I do. With her cults of Diana, Murray agreed with Michelet's conclusion that the Black Mass featured a gender inversion, placing women in the authoritative position otherwise reserved for men in Catholic rites. But both are perhaps best read as reflecting what a certain class of intellectuals wanted to believe about Renaissance witches rather than what historical paganism might have actually looked like in medieval and Renaissance Europe. I'll say again, as I said at the beginning, 
when we talk about witchcraft in the Renaissance and the medieval period, by and large, we are not talking about people who are actively participating in some sort of organized movement. These are just regular folk who continue to hold folk beliefs, folk traditions, which have pagan origins. And Christianity today is still full of those, but we're going to have to wait a few series. We're going to talk about those when we get to sex magic later. <sighs> All right. Anything else on, on that, you guys? You want to, any comments on the witchcraft stuff? Mostly. Uh, so you're saying that they are allegedly witches. Yes, Here, I mean it's just just within the context of these people's uh, documents. Y- yeah, it's yes, it, well, for sure. Michelet, Murray, the, they're just imagining again based on Malleus Maleficarum, based on truly um, imaginary sources. Like just to put a, a fine point on it, the trials of the the, the registers of the Inquisition and the Malleus Maleficarum are people who did not practice these things. They never witnessed any of this stuff. They just made it up off the top of their head and sometimes got other people to confess to it. So, I mean, if you're torturing somebody, you can get them to say pretty much whatever you want. Okay. So this is the last stop on our tour here. And and it's, you're going to like this one. It's a weird one. It's a dark one, uh, but I think nobody gets hurt when all is said and done. So, We've been talking for most of this these two episodes about Roman Catholics, the which were just dom- which were just the Christians for most of of history, um, and how they persecuted minority groups, right? Right. Guess what happens when Protestantism Protestantism takes over and becomes the uh, default religion of North America? What do the Protestants do? Uh, point at the Catholics and call them <laughs> child murderers and ancestral. Yes, yep. yeah, yes. <laughs> this so this is a, sort of a cherry on the Sunday here. We're going to bring this on home. At the very when we start when we started, the Christians were a minority group who were being accused of child murder, and now it happens again. The Catholics have become a minority group within Christianity, and they're going to be accused of it. Here comes the story. For more than a thousand years, Roman Catholic Christianity was the dominant religion of the Western world. The Roman Catholic worldview painted Gnostics, Fraticellis, Jews, and the unenlightened peasants uh, of the witchcraft uh, trials as enemies of all things true and good. When the New World was founded by Protestants, Catholics became the minority and subject to scandalous rumor-mongering. The intersection of anti-Catholicism and ritual evil took form in this book. Ready for this? I'm going to do this all in one breath. The awful disclosure of Maria Monk as exhibited in a narrative of her sufferings during a residence of five years as a novice and two years as a black nun in the Hotel du Nunnery at Montreal. That's called an intro. That's called the beginning of a book. That's not the title. <laughs> it's a good, good early 19th century title. It's a description of, yeah. the, of the contents. The, That's the like the inner, the inner book sleep, yeah. if you will. It's the trailer. It's the book's trailer. It's a title and a trailer all in one. Imagine if we name movies that way. Oh, no. It wouldn't fit on a ticket. 
the godfather who will eventually make you an offer you can't refuse and also sometime maybe get shot at maybe he'll die also in a tomato patch part one gives away the whole plot yeah (laughs) sometime before 1836 the account of maria monk a supposed former nun was published detailing the ways she had witnessed and been subject to abuse at a convent in montreal she called this convent the black nunnery and her narrative caused a sensation in canada and also the united states we don't do enough canadian history on this podcast for as many canadian fans as we have we really don't yeah we we, we need to get into Can- we do canada does come up i don't shy away whenever i can talk about canada i do but you know we got to dig in a little more we did the wendigos a couple seasons ago. oh yeah we did So Maria was born in St. John's uh, and schooled by nuns as a child. These sisters were not well-educated themselves, according to Maria, and mostly only taught needlepoint. Apparently that was their main skill. Hmm. Priests visited the school to warn Maria that Protestants would send her to hell if she followed (laughs) the Protestants. And the priests also taught her that priests were infallible, completely infallible. No matter what the priest did, it was good. If the priest was doing it, it was okay. Hmm. So if the priest is murdering a kitten, that's good. Yeah, I see the slippery slope. It's right there. (laughs) I see it. Slip right on down. Yep. (laughs) Priest is stealing a candy bar? Fine. Murdering a kitten? Sure. Hmm. Uh, Dropping an atom bomb? Fine. The priest is doing it. What's morality? Ask a priest. A Protestant caricature of Catholic practice is a steady theme running throughout the book, implicitly privileging the Protestant alternative. The infallibility of priests, the deification of the mother superior, and neglect of the Bible are just some examples. So the neglect of the Bible, it's sort of an interesting one, but you have to bear in mind that Protestantism, even in its earliest days, was about the translation of the Bible, that everyone should get to read their Bible. Mm -hmm. And the sort of caricature of Catholics is that they don't bother. They have their rituals instead, and they follow the Pope rather than following and interpreting the Bible on their own. You see what I mean? Don't let these other people read the Bible. They're not doing it right. We know how to do it. (laughs) Yes. Great dislike to the Bible was shown by those who conversed with me about it, and several have remarked to me that if it were not for that book, Catholics would never be led to renounce their own faith. Maria resolved to join the Black Nunnery, uh, which was one of three convents in Montreal, and was admitted as a novice. She began by sewing with a large group of 40 other novices, just 40 novice nuns sewing in a room. Uh, All were kept from entering the interior apartments where the fully initiated nuns lived. So I I don't know much about convents, but this is apparently how it works. You become a a novice. So if you watch The Sound of Music, you sort of get the gist. You become a novice, which means you're not quite a nun. So remember how uh, Julie Andrews, she doesn't get to wear that fancy the black habit. outfit. Yeah, she doesn't get the habit. You get the habit once you're promoted to nun from novice, but you got to be a novice for a while. So Maria quit the convent when a nun offended her. <laughs> Oddly enough, we're talking about Maria. It's the same. Anyway, not Maria von Trapp. <laughs> Maria Monk quit the convent when a nun offended her. Maria von Trapp quit when she fell in love with the captain. Rip that guy. He just died, Christopher Plummer. That's what I just said. Rest in peace. Uh, But Christopher Plummer, not Captain von Trapp, who was also a real person, by the way, and died much earlier. Well, yeah. yeah. Okay. (laughs) So, So... 
what was I saying? Maria quit the convent when a nun offended her. And then she went on to work as an assistant teacher. She got married to a man that lasted for three weeks before she annulled it Mm. because he had done something wrong that had been concealed from her. Don't ask me what. She doesn't tell us. Okay. That's cryptic and I love it. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I'm going to imagine absinthe, a candlestick, and a moose. That's what he did wrong. Okay. It's Canada. Hmm. Yeah, Moose is involved. You guys, what do you think he did? Name things. Name, what things do you think were involved in what her, her three-week husband did that she had to get out of that marriage right away? Uh, I would. I, my mind went to just like annoying things, like leaving his fingernail clippings. On the yeah, toilet. I was thinking like he left the yeah. toilet seat up, but I was like, they probably didn't. That's not how that worked back then. No, I got a whole clue scenario in my head. Like this is this is hardcore. Oh, it doesn't take much if she could just. If she had the right to just annul it that fast, I mean. Three weeks. In and out. Well, she was a nun. She was a novice. Okay. Anyway, she wanted to get back into the nunnery. And her friend vouched for her purity during the period of her absence. Incidentally, she did not mention to the black nunnery that she had gotten married. (laughs) So then, okay. So she was just like, no, we didn't consummate it and dipped. Uh, yeah, but she, yeah, she to her friend. So her friend said that she she remained a virgin, but she uh, Maria herself just didn't mention the marriage to the nunnery when she went back. Oh, I see. Well, okay, it's that easy. Okay, fine. There's no okay. social media back then. It's not like they could right, like they look could back update. through Instagram, yeah, and be like, "Who's this guy?" <laughs> He's what not are these tagged. toenail clippings? What is this picture of toenail clippings? Why is there a moose in the window? <laughs> all right so now uh let's get into so maria's a novice she gets admitted into the nunnery she becomes a nun Mm -hmm. let's get into that so the ritual to join the convent as a full nun was somewhat surreal to take the veil which is what we call it when you become a nun she laid in her own coffin which they said would be used again at her death oh hell no sort of gothy yeah uh so (laughs) Uh, the specter or threat of death seemed to hang over Maria as soon as she was fully initiated. She mentions more than once that there is a strictly controlled number of nuns in the convent. It's always the same number, never more or less. Oh my God. Like the Vatican? God. Yes. So there's exactly, you know, whatever, 40 nuns or 20 nuns. So they kill them? Yes, if one is joining, then another has died. But nuns did oh. all did not necessarily all meet natural ends oh. at the black nunnery. Oh my god! And women were not the only victims of homicide in the convent's walls. <gasps> Children, so let's. Uh, yeah, J- James, you're 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 oh, right there. Damn You've... it! I wanted it to be the men. <laughs> James has been listening. Yes, that's true. It is the children, not the men. Sorry, Olivia. What are the men doing? What do you think the men are doing? What are the priests doing? Not doing anything good, that's for sure. (laughs) They're mansplaining. That's a crime. (laughs) Leaving their toenail clippings. Annulled. Uh, uh, Well, this is a a Black Mass episode. Come on. So if if children are dying, what are the priests doing? They're sacrificing them for for Black rituals, evil rituals. Getting that blood, maybe? Ritual evil. Yeah. They are molesting and raping the nuns. Oh. Oh, Oh, I see. Illicit sex and child murder are the hallmarks of the Black Mass. So, 
The priests are allowed to visit the convent pretty much at all hours. Their emergency access is presumably to minister to sick and dying nuns, but was mostly taken advantage of uh, in order to molest the nuns, according to Maria. So this is all... Well, we'll get to why why it's not true, but so this this is the anti-Catholic book. Priests also tortured the nuns by beating them and sticking pins into their cheeks and hanging them upside down with their clothing tied around their bodies, which is kind of weird. What the? F- because they molested them, but then they didn't want their bits to show when they hung them upside down, so they tied their clothes to them. Okay. Father Dufresne called me out, saying he wished to speak with me. I feared what was his intention, but I dared not disobey. In a private apartment, he treated me in a brutal manner, and from two other priests I afterwards received similar usage that evening. Father Dufresne afterwards appeared again, and I was compelled to remain in company with him until morning. The product of these illicit couplings was unwanted children, as James pointed out, and here the Black Mass shows itself very clearly in the practices of the Black Nunnery. Infants were sometimes born in the convent but they were always baptized and then immediately strangled. This secured their everlasting happiness, for the baptism purifies them of all sinfulness, and being sent out of the world before they had time to do anything wrong, they were at once admitted into heaven. The little lifeless bodies were brought down to the cellar, tossed into a great pit, and covered in quicklime to mask the smell. So they're taking their due diligence with the baptisms. Uh, yeah, they're 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 as far as the next life is concerned, they're they're concerned. They're very worried about that. But when it comes to this life, yeah. The names of these children and their mothers were recorded in a book kept by this mass grave in, in the basement of the nunnery. One nun named Saint Francis refused to participate in the murder of infants, and after a brief trial, was executed for it by being smothered to death. She was laid on a bed face upward, bound to the bed, and crushed and suffocated under another bed that other nuns laid on top of and pressed down upon. It's like being stoned, like the ain't like when they would. Oh yeah, cover you in stones. Yeah, boulders, but with nuns. Again, this is according to Maria Monk in this very unusual anti-Catholic book. Okay. So finally, Maria makes up her mind to escape. I was occasionally troubled with a desire of escaping from the nunnery, and was much distressed whenever I felt so evil an imagination rise in my mind. I believed that it was a sin, a great sin, and did not fail to confess at every opportunity that I felt discontented. My confessors informed me that I was beset with evil spirits and urged me to pray against it. Still, however, every now and then I would think, oh, if I could get out. Having conceived a child, Maria escaped, fleeing to the United States. Priests inquired after her, but she stayed clear of them and lived to tell her tale. So it's a little bit like the fugitive or something. All these priests are coming to get her, like the secret police or something. Wait, what year is this again? Uh, So the earliest would be 1836. The book was published sometime before 1836. Okay. Okay. Now... Here comes the truth or falsity of this. You can guess which one it's going to be. True or false? Did any of this happen? Writing in the theological... You're going to guess? No, uh, never mind. Okay. (laughs) 
Writing in the Theological Review in 1836, David Meredith Rees attempted to expose Maria Monk's awful disclosure as a hoax. Rees began by arguing that no matter how passionately anti-Catholic or anti-Papist in the terminology of the period, so you could either be anti-Catholic or anti-Papist, but if it was 1836, you probably wouldn't say anti-Catholic, you would say anti-Papist, meaning anti-Pope follower. You got me? Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, So he began by arguing that no matter how anti-papist you were, uh, that wouldn't prove the details of what he called the systemic, systematic iniquity that Maria Monk described. Maria's mother attested to journalists, her own mother, Mrs. Monk, that Maria had never been a member of any convent in Montreal. A committee of three Protestant ministers and two laymen visited the so-called Black Nunnery in Montreal. One of the most detailed portions of Maria's narrative was an outline she did of the way the building was arranged. A truly boring part of the book that I, got to be honest, I skimmed through. Mm. Although the committee did not gain admittance to the nuns' private apartments, they discovered that the building was just not arranged at all the way she had described. So it was weird that she would go into such detail. Right. And it was not accurate. Making inquiries around the city, they found out that Monk had been an inmate of the Magdalene Asylum at Montreal, among other unfortunate females who were thought to be repentant. Yeah. So um, much of Maria's account, it turns out, was a distorted reflection of her experiences in the asylum and not actually at the convent. And at least some, particularly the Black Mass infanticide ritual, was probably completely imagined from whole cloth. There's an interesting character in her story uh, who she calls the Mad Nun. Her name was Jane Ray. And Jane Ray is sort of like the the most, she's like this, your cool friend. She talks back to the Mother Superior and the other nuns at the convent. She's always, you know, pulling practical jokes and stuff. And she was frequently punished at, uh, punished by the other nuns for this behavior. But she turns out to have been on the patient rosters for the Magdalene Asylum, along with Maria Monk. Hmm. Says Reese, uh, I'll just quote him, soon after the book's publication, it was announced in the Canada papers that the ex-nun was notoriously known in the city of Montreal, meaning Maria Monk, that she had never been within the nunnery, much less taken the veil, and that her mother and other members of her family were prepared to sustain this fact. In the grand tradition of conspiracy accounts, the fact that Monk's story was disproven more or less right at the time of its publication has not prevented it from resurfacing as evidence of Catholic immorality, and more significantly for our story, evidence of a long tradition of satanic ritual abuse. This story is actually brought up in the 1970s and 1980s as evidence that ritual abuse has been going on for more than a century. The false charges against the Gnostics, the Jews, and the so-called witches surface as well as evidence points of a long-standing tradition of ritual evil in Western history. Okay. Questions? Um, I guess I was just wondering if, so was she actually ever married slash did she actually like, was she actually still at the asylum or did she flee actually? Did she actually have a kid? Was there anything that was true or just like, this you know is pretty I mean? much, I think the kid might have been real. I think that she did end up in the United States with the child or pregnant, you know, because these were sort of the end points of her story. And then, she, you know, this group gathered around her and she wrote this book. But what she wrote 
turned out to be a fabrication. She was actually in an asylum. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, we, we can only guess as to which elements of her story are true or false. We know that what she said about the nunnery was false because she was never there. But, you know, as far as the marriage and, you know, maybe they did, maybe at the asylum, they tortured somebody with the bed. That's entirely possible, you know, so there could be some truth to it. It's just the black mass never happened. There is no, there were no Catholics performing black mass rituals in the basement, murdering children. Mm. Okay, here we go. Let's do the Rob's take on this two-parter. This is... It'll be a big one. For more than a millennium and a half, people have used tales of ritual evil involving A, the perversion or inversion of Christian rites and symbols, and B, say it one more time, child murder mm-hmm. and incest to tarnish reputations and justify the persecution of groups who beliefs, whose beliefs and practices differ from their own. In every case, these accusations have been almost entirely made up, frequently conflicting with the theology and worldviews of the people they sought to indict. Child murder or infanticide is a running theme because it is arguably the worst crime most of us can think of. There is no human more blameless or helpless than a newborn, and so there is no act more horrifying than murdering an infant. And when we get to, you know, little St. William and St. Hugh and all these folks, they're just a little bit older. They're eight-year-old children. They're six-year-old children. It's horrifying. Proof of ritual evil need go no further than to say this group I hate kills children. Although they often do go on to include orgies and incest. Norman Kahn calls this a dehumanizing fantasy that justified brutal treatment of the so-called heretic. Incestuous baby killers were less than human, and so they could be treated inhumanly. A similar logic informed propagandistic portrayals of the enemy in wartime, really across history. We were always doing this, dehumanizing the people that we're fighting with in World War II, World War I, on and on. I suspect that the inversion of Christian symbols, substituting semen into communion, performing mock crucifixions, using a woman's body as an altar, using baptism as a justification for murder, that these labeled these chosen enemies as self-consciously anti-Christian, meaning the right kind of Christian and not just any Christian. These people weren't only generally evil, they were specifically anti-Christian in their evil, and that's important. These enemy groups, the victims of black mass libel, were part of the same communities as their accusers and followed belief systems that at least shared a basic ritual and theological vocabulary with their accusers' brand of Christianity. Of course, this is one exception to this is when the Christians themselves were accused of this. Mm -hmm. But they were different enough to cause fear and dread, but not so different as to be irrelevant is the point I'm trying to make. Gnostics shared Roman Catholic Christians' belief in Christ. Jews followed the religious roots of Christianity. Most European Christians practiced pagan customs and held pagan superstitions, as we can see in our Christmas trees and Easter eggs. And Catholics, like Jews to Renaissance Roman Catholics, were the root religion of their Protestant detractors. So all of these people calling each other evil are incredibly close together in belief systems. It's not like we're talking about a Scientologist and a Mormon. Actually, there's an argument to be made there. It's not like we're talking about (laughs) a, uh, I don't know, Shinto and a 
uh, Wiccan. They're monotheistic. So, like, what's what's there to argue about? <laughs> they're monotheistic, and they're all sects of Judaism, essentially. Yeah. Of one stripe or another. Or Jews themselves. We accuse our religious cousins of infanticide and sexual sin because they show up our claim to having and following the one true faith. This brings us all the way back to my radical open-mindedness. We know from interacting with these religious cousins that they are as intelligent and perhaps even as pious and neighborly and loving as we are. But if our worldview depends on us understanding and following the one and only path described by God for salvation or righteousness, then our enemies, no matter how normal or good they may seem, must be evil. And these false accounts grow out of our need to believe that non-believers in our tradition must not only be misguided, but fundamentally evil. This is by no means an artifact of the past, but is a problem that is very much with us live and in person right now, as we mentioned. So in our next episode, we're going to bring the story of the Black Mass into the postmodern world when we talk about Charlie Manson. That's right. Woo! That's going to be a doozy. Good luck, Chuck. Uh, so here's the here's the deal uh, with where we're going from this point forward. It will be Charlie Manson. It will be Michelle Smith and her book with Lawrence Prasder, Michelle Remembers, which was the essentially the Bible of the Satanic Panic of the 1980s. Uh, we're going to talk about uh, another CIA sex slave. This is going to be a wild ride, uh, and it's going to end with our contemporary QAnon conspiracy theory about a satanic cabal of elites murdering children. Yeah, we're going there. All right. Closing thoughts, you guys? So this cheap trick of like kind of poking down and, you know, uh, accusing others of these terrible things. Is there like a defense for that? How do we undo that? I guess by going through the documents and seeing the truth for ourselves. (sighs) That's a good question. <laughs> I think this is a fine time to think about that, James. Uh, my motive in doing this series is so that our listeners, who tend to share this sort of radical open-minded view, uh, or at least evidence-based view of the world, so they have something to say when they hear some of the nonsense that that folks might say to them. So when they come up against this, they can say, well, actually, this has a 2,000-year history. I, I don't know if that's going to solve the problem. <laughs> I mean, certainly our podcast is not going to solve the problem, but I, I don't know. It helps to get the truth. I think it helps to get the history. I think it's always better to be educated on these things. But ultimately, if, we are, if our friends are, believe in these conspiracies, we need to hear them out and gently, compassionately, try to get them to understand otherwise, understand why this is harmful to themselves and to other people. Uh, I think if, if we're in a situation where we're just pointing figures, fingers and, and yelling at each other, we're never going to get anything done. Maybe that's not a popular opinion. No, I, I definitely, uh, I have some experience with having friends with different kind of uh, outlooks on life. <laughs> 
and it, it is a fine line to walk. I mean, I've called my friends idiots before and told them that they're stupid. That doesn't help. In fact, it just makes it worse. So, yeah. You know, a calm dialogue, I guess, can, can do something. Yeah, and informed. Yeah, a calm, informed dialogue. I think that's what we're trying to encourage here. And, and we're going to help inform everybody because most of us don't walk around with this kind of like depth knowledge of of where these ideas come from. But we know when we hear them that they're wrong, that they're not evidence-based. And and when we talk about radical open-mindedness, that doesn't mean when we hear a conspiracy theory that we know is inherently wrong, that we're open-minded to it. I mean, I guess we're open-minded until we know that it's nonsense. We can sort of smell when something feels off and we can do the research and, and find out. The odd thing is that the folks who spout these things will say, well, you got to you got to do your research, right? I mean, mm-hmm. that's the line. Oh, well, it's this. It's this satanic Look cabal. it up. Yeah, look, look, look it up. Look it up. But when you do, you'll find a whole lot of sources. So that's the thing, right? I mean, right here, these are a whole lot of sources that say ritual evil exists. It's basically what I've just done is a catalog of sources that say it exists. But if you just go a little bit under the surface, you realize that they are fabricated, that they've been disproven. So it's not enough to just look it up and listen to somebody who believes it. You need to question the premise of the belief and look for whether or not there is any actual evidence that the belief is valid. So encourage your friends to do that. (laughs) (laughs) Let's dive deeper on this issue, right? Right. Olivia, what what do you think? I don't want to say I have a little bit of a harsher view. Oh, but well, you do. That's that's your brand, man. I just think that there are some things, uh, some conspiracies that it, you shouldn't be gentle about <laughs> telling them that they're wrong because you look at things like QAnon and blood libels and it's just like if you, it's like you said though, I mean, do your history, like do your research on history, I mean, but I literally for like the past three weeks, I've just been reading so many sources of just accounts from the time or modern accounts of all of these massacres that for sure happened. And it's just, I don't know. I feel like there's just uh, ignorance. QAnon is just ignorance. So I feel like that should be handled harshly. <laughs> well, we'll, we'll, we'll handle that uh, in a few Maybe episodes, that's a hot but... take though. I don't know. I've been, when you keep reading about like, just, I'm talking about thousands and thousands of people who had to murder their own children and their own people. So they weren't converted or weren't like tortured into being like baptized. Yes. It's just like, I, I don't know. I don't feel any sympathy for <laughs> anyone that has any kind of blood libel beliefs but i mean that those in particular are, are deeply pernicious anything that's race based um is is going to be a, a pernicious and troubling thing the problem i think is that in contemporary conspiracy there's a denial of racism mm-hmm. while at the same yeah. time maintaining that racism so they'll say the rothschilds uh, ray gun while at the same time saying the nazis are wrong and evil that the both thoughts seem to occupy the same mind but they contradict each other because there's an anti-semitic worldview that's being coupled with an anti-nazi anti-fascist world in theory but that I mean we're going to do a, actually we're going to do a whole episode on this we're going to talk about uh nazi scientists and the conspiracy around nazi scientists in the united states 
So we are going to get, we're going to dig into this a bit. I, I think that you're right, Olivia, when it inspires hate, we need to be extra, extra cautious, maybe extra harsh. I guess I guess I just worry that I don't want to. If I have an opportunity to change somebody's mind, I'd like I'd always like to take that opportunity. Maybe that's what, what I want to. Yeah. It's yeah. the teacher it's, in you too. Yeah, 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 yeah. As a teacher, you know, I feel like you want to look at the individual and listen to them first, which is painful and hard sometimes. <laughs> yeah. Yes, but if they're not being heard, they're not going to listen to you. And Q is so broad. And they encompass so many different beliefs that, you know, if I were to really do a deep dive, and we are, we're going to look at specifically the satanic cabal stuff, which is wrong uh, and a myth and made up and problematic. But I have said when we talked about Kathy O'Brien, for example, that we need to be suspicious of the rich and elites and and we need to be, you know, have a sort of... um, Anyway, that there, there's the conspiracy has a logic to it in in that fashion, right? But it stops at the point where it's inspiring. It, it just stops at the point where it's not tr- where it's false, where it's no longer <laughs> possibly true. Yeah, yeah. It's just yeah. yeah. I mean, it's like when you look at history and the fact that blood libel is just continued through history because people keep writing it down and passing it down in a certain way with certain context, whether it's true or not. And it's just like, you're just continuing that. Mm-hmm. But Right. And the ritual evil, both in blood libel and now, you know, we're talking about uh, people like us who will, who are accused of ritual evil. Uh, it's a similar yeah. sort of ancient thing that's been passed from generation to generation. So that it really needs to be dealt with. So we're going to do it on the podcast. Um, and we're going to try to keep an open mind, but the the real goal is to yeah give all of you the tools to to understand where this stuff comes from and why it's a problem. All right, let's gong it on into the order of confessors. Jason Wilkins thinks we're offering up lighthearted fun and education. Oh my god, <laughs> <laughs> that was perfect. Perfect timing. That was perfect. Uh, yep. <laughs> He's a fan of history, especially stories outside the standard school curriculum. Absolutely. And we're accompanying Jason on his hour-long commute through traffic jams and near-death experiences. Oh, my God. He's safe. Yeah. Yeah. Sounds like fun. Uh, ALWX1109 says- Oh, my God. Alwix1109. Okay. Alwix says, fantastic, well-researched, fun fun and lighthearted- Wow, this is... <laughs> I know, right after we did all that. Uh, we say thank you, Alwix. Yes. Uh, Robert Smith, a.k.e. the Marquis de Lade. Oh, shit. Okay. Uh, this okay, is an Marquis. answer to our T.O.P.Y. episode. Uh, Robert Smith says, or the Marquis says, the, the number 23, uh, he attributes it to Rob- William S. Burroughs and Robert Anton Wilson. Wilson had deep ties to the Discordian founders, which points to a comment from uh, another listener some plumpin on the nice. same subject. Nailed it. <laughs> some plumpin said 23 is a Discordian number. Two plus three equals the sacred Discordian number five. Uh, Kevin M. and Froalidis Frul- uh, point out that Acid House Music, again, uh, our T.O.P.Y. episode, uh, does have a connection to drugs. Which drugs? Uh, we can debate another time. 
Smith also says, uh, so back to Robert Smith, he says that uh, Chris Carter of Throbbing Gristle invented his own sampling machine in the 70s that may be in the running for the first such sampling device. So lots of cool stuff on that episode from our from our listeners. Thank you, everyone. Y'all are so smart. Hello, Occult Confessions. This is Mackenzie H. of the Get It Girl podcast for the girls who just get it. I'm trying to reach Bree and Olivia about their Bring Back the Bush campaign. I saw you all posting about this on Insta, and I thought to myself, what bush could they possibly be referring to? I have to assume that you meant the Bush twins, who clearly were the best part of the administration, or maybe perhaps Kate Bush. But that's kind of a throwback, you know, super retro, like like Brittany or Hannah Montana. But even more retro than that. I saw this girl at Coachella. And this was like like two years ago because Coachella post-COVID is really just like a lame Zoom meeting. Like, like now it's like if you tried to have a rave at that cute little NPR desk and it would go exactly how you expected. Anyways, so I saw this girl and she threw her arms back because those French guys with the helmets, you know, like... I'm up all night to get, like, I don't know, ass or something. Anyway, you know who I'm talking about. Um, They were totally, like, rocking so hard that this girl, she threw up her arms, and under her arms, there were these two little, like, wilderness retreats, one under each arm with a deer and a tire swing and naked hippies dancing around. Smokey the Bear wants to save it. Everything. It was so nasty. So DM me or whatever. And and please just, just let me know what this all is about. And I just hope that it was not about this girl's armpits. This has been a message from Mackenzie H. of the Get It Girl podcast. You're welcome. Our sources today include Norman Kahn's Europe's Inner Demons, uh, Springer's Malleus Maleficarum, Jules Michelet La Sorciere, Hannah Johnson, Blood Libel, Colin, The Ritual Murder Accusation at the Limit of Jewish History, uh, The Life and Miracles of St. William of Norwich by Thomas of Monmouth. Olivia? Oh, boo! Suck a dick! Oh, sorry. (laughs) Joseph! Joseph Jacobs' article, Little St. Hugh of Lincoln, Researches in History, Archaeology, in Legend, uh, Awful Disclosures of Maria Monk, etc., uh, published in 1830, roughly in 1836 by Truslove and Bray Limited, and Article 8, Thoughts on the Present Aspect of the Roman Catholic Controversy by David Meredith Reese in the Literary and Theological Review, 1836. Okay, uh, Olivia, get us out of here. I feel like I should clarify that I only say suck a dick as an insult to Thomas because he would take it as an insult. <laughs> there you go. Anyway, I hereby adjourn and declare close this meeting of the Secret Order of Alchemical Actors till such a time as we get together and do it again. Uh, okay. Uh, let's let's name those voice, voice folks one more time. Just give them one more... Uh... Shout out Sean Priest and Luke Kinneman, Andrew Mims, Brandon Walls, and Savannah Barrett. Thank you for this two-part series. Joining me uh, at the mic, we have James Caplanges, captain of the table. It was uh, awesome to be back, Rob. Woo! James is James back! back in the fold. So we'll look forward to hearing more from James as the year 
uh, in year four. Here we are. <laughs> <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's kind of evil laugh. Uh, and Olivia Literal, our grandmaster. Yep. I feel like I said all I needed to say today. That's yeah, fine. You're good. Yeah. That's good. Uh, my name is Rob C. Thompson, and I have also said all I needed to say today. <laughs> Join us next time when we do our episode on Charlie Manson and the myth that Manson was worshipping Satan.